Namaste and good evening to all of you. We continue tonight with a long, long series of explanations where we try to see from a yogic standpoint what is Jesus teaching. And um, we were in a place where Jesus was uh, showing, again, his radical nature, his unusual nature, that the ways of God which he represents are very different from the ways of people. And he gives this story of who will be the greatest, where he turns things upside down, there is the episode where one of his disciples thinks if they should maybe curse the unbelievers who don't want to receive them. And then we are somewhere, for those of you who are curious strictly about the text itself, we are in the chapter 9 of this Gospel of Luke, where there come about three or four small episodes, like two-liners, four-liners, a strophe, just a short story. Um, I remember there are such short stories about Francis of Assisi, the Italian Roman Catholic saint in the 12th century, and they are called in Italian the Fioretti, which means the little flowers. The little flowers of saint, like small stories which are about, uh, you know, 50 words, 100 words, describing a small thing which St. Francis did. Here we have a few episodes with Jesus which are not directly connected, they are only in spirit connected to Jesus, and which are like little flowers of Jesus. The first one, if you remember last time, is that somebody, towards the end of the lecture last time, somebody says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, you know, you can find animals in their lairs, in their dens, but even the birds have nests, but the Son of Man comes from nowhere and goes nowhere. You cannot really follow me. And another man gave that formidable statement that Jesus goes and tells to somebody, come follow me. You can always think, you know, what would have happened if I, with the life which I have right now, I would be meeting with Jesus. Okay, now Jesus is really famous after 2,000 years, but in those days, maybe he was not that famous. And Jesus would come to me and say, come follow me. No? And would you just let everything, drop everything and go? Would you give yourself? And then, of course, in the end of that road, there is persecution, beating, torture, imprisonment, death. It's not, he's not calling you to live in a palace. He's calling you to work hard and maybe to lose your life in the process. And uh, this man at least said, at least let me bury my father. His father was in the process of being buried, had just died. And Jesus gives him that terrible answer formidable answer, like either Jesus is a megalomanic schizophrenic that should be crucified quickly, quickly, because he is disturbing the world with madness like this, or if he is right, 
realize what he's saying, Jesus, because that's where we stopped last time. You know, this man says, let me bury my father, like it's a matter of 24 hours, and then I can catch up with you. And the enlightenment is not going to happen in the next 24 hours, and it didn't. There was no major event waiting to happen in the next 24 hours. And this man just simply said, it's just common decency that I help my mother, my family, you know, my villagers, and so on, to bury my father. And Jesus doesn't accept that, not because he can't accept it, but for the heck of it. He wants to be a tough bastard, you know. He wants to be really tough. And he wants to show this black and white. He wants to show this madness. That here, it's about being crazy for God. It's about having a burning aspiration. It's about pushing things to a real big extreme. And Jesus tells him to tell you. Remember, Jesus is supposed to be the path of the heart. Mercy. Love. Love your enemies. And, you know, like big things. And Jesus tells to this man who just says, just a second, I'll follow you in 12 hours. I'll bury my father and then hurry up and catch up with you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. The dead bury their own dead. Like the people from the village and his family, they are dead. He defines them as dead. Let the dead bury the dead. That's what Gurdjieff says 2,000 years later. Gurdjieff says there are people who are alive, but spiritually they are dead. They just follow routines and they are robots. They biologically still live, but they have become zombies. Their soul is not alive. Their immortal essence does not exist. And if they die... They go into a chaotic state of existence. There is no meaning. There is no enlightenment. There is nothing glorious that would come out of that. So Jesus, but again, Gurdjieff was a tough guy. He was a weirdo. He has been accused of so many things, this Gurdjieff, that he was unfair and a liar and a cheater and a fake and a million other things. No, So you can say about Gurdjieff, but Jesus, Jesus the loving one, Jesus the son of God, Jesus who comes to preach the message of ultimate love, like there is no higher love than the love which Jesus is preaching, Jesus tells to a potential disciple, let the dead bury their own dead. Like the people out there, they are like a fresco on a wall. There is 12 significant people who are called Peter, John, Thomas, and the other people are just names on a list. They are numb faces in a crowd. They don't exist. Yeah, maybe in 50,000 years, some of them will become spiritual, then I will talk to them more closely. It almost sounds cynical. It definitely sounds terrible. It sounds scary because you can see that Jesus is having a love, but the love of Jesus contains the fact that he says, dust your shoes in that village 
And in the day of the judgment, even Sodom and Gomorrah will have had a better fate than that village. Like, wait a second, this is a God of love, but that love doesn't mean this superficial political correctness or, you know, his love is a love which contains spanking, like the parents did in the old days, before all these wiki, all these uh, hippie trends came in Western education until the 1960s. It was customary, even in Western Europe, that children took physical punishment from their parents whenever they trespassed. You know, Jesus seems to be made of that dough. Jesus is made of that matter because he admits that sometimes children get some, not literal children, children of God get punishment. They burn to hell. They undergo the wrath of God. You know, it's that love which God has and which Jesus says God loves you. It's not a love without pain. It is what Gurdjieff in the 20th century, he called objective love. Like, he says, this love which you would describe, it was not. Gurdjieff did not come to see that time in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, and he died before that. But even at that time, he said there is something some people call love, and it's just attachment, weakness, svadistana. It's not the real love. And Gurdjieff said, sometimes love can be very tough. And it is called objective love. Exactly like Akhil Gibran, when he speaks about love in the Prophet, he says very clearly, love contains tears. Love is going to crown you, but love is going to crucify you as well. Love contains amazing good things, and it contains terrible things, because otherwise your soul will not see the difference between the light and darkness and will not evolve. And thus, this is exactly where you, from such things you can see that Jesus has exactly what Gurdjieff would call objective love. Today, the things which Hollywood movies and others are publishing as love is just a weakness, is just an attachment. It's just a Svadistanistic feeling, which is unfairly called love. Even Mahatma Gandhi, who was with the non-violence and this, when he was asked about if your son is afraid to interfere into some conflict, is that non-violence? And he said, no, if my son is afraid, then he should go and do it. No, he should go to battle. Non-violence is for the strong, for the ones who can do violence, and then they choose to go beyond that. And that's why Jesus, who himself doesn't do violence, is sometimes verbally very sharp. He wants people to be wild, like a slave that decides to break his chains. There is no compromise when you want to break your chains. When you want to break your chains, you wriggle like a wild animal and you put your hara into it 110% and you break the chains. You don't just stay there and say, oh, maybe I should be civilized about it. There's nothing to be civilized about it. So Jesus tells to this man, 
Be a wild animal. Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, if today Guru Shivananda would have said to somebody, you know, let the dead bury their dead, you go and proclaim yoga. People would have said, Shivanandaji, you are a pig, you are exploiting people. No, this is today, I, there have been cases in Europe that I've heard where governments from Europe condemned people for doing karma yoga. Because karma yoga is a form of slavery. It's a form of exploitation that people work without getting paid and without getting rewarded. And you can't do that. Like in some countries it's forbidden by the law. You cannot work as a volunteer to somebody unless with lawyers you make special contracts and terms and this and that, you know. But in a place like Thailand or like India, people are working for ashrams, for Buddhist monasteries, for this, and they do it like seva. It's service. It's free service. I want to do service for a spiritual cause. And I don't want to be paid for it, and I don't want to be rewarded, because my reward is my soul. My reward is the action which I'm doing. No? So, it's like Jesus is an exploiter. He says, I need you to preach my cause. I need to make you one of my followers, so I send you away and you preach the things. And people say, man, are you crazy? You don't even let the man bury his father. It's not that Jesus had something against the father or against burials or against supporting the community. But he wanted this man to behave wildly. He wanted him to become an outlaw, a wild man, you know, to break chains. The spirit, he was interested very much in the spirit of it. And the little flowers continue, at least one more. Still another man said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. We really, they sound so preposterous, this one with burying the father, with saying goodbye to the family, that we can even wonder if they are put there as a sort of a, like, you know, Jesus was extreme, and here are a few examples of how far this man would have gone, or if these things had happened literally. Remember that there is a belief that the people who wrote these things, that they were fanatics, they were total believers, and they wouldn't have changed a bit. None of them would have dared to say, and one day Jesus uh, found a, a rubber tree somewhere, and he started rubbing his penis against the rubber tree. You know, it's like nobody would invent stories about Jesus, because they would be afraid that they go to hell if they say lies about Jesus. So the fact that they say this story, it almost belies belief, you know, it's like... Uh, did the Jesus really, I mean, you know, it's just two stories put together. It's little flowers, you know. It just wants to show us little things about Jesus. Another one said, Lord, I will follow you. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Like, yeah, I also want to take a sweater for the evenings because it's cold if we go and walk out in the outside of the villages. I need a blanket. I need something. Whatever. Would you go 
not telling to your family you've gone with Jesus and then they think that maybe you fell into a ditch and broke your neck and everybody suffers or goes desperate and you are being proclaimed as a missing person and people don't know if you are alive or dead. Like, nobody would do it. It's just normal thing, you know. At least I need to go to my mother, my brother, my wife, my child, my somebody, my friend and tell them, hey, you know, forget about me. I'm going for a few years with this crazy man called Jesus, you know, because I like him very much and I want to test what this guy is all about, you know. And he says, well, I just want to go and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So tough. This can make you understand better the people from Shambhala. For those of you who know what Shambhala is, there are some lectures online what I've explained, it's one of the big things in spirituality. Jesus gives a weird explanation where he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Looking back, like Jesus says, you never look back. Peter had a wife. He had children. Peter was older than Jesus. If Jesus was 32 or 33 in the end of his life, Peter was around 40, which in those days was a lot. Like Peter was all, almost getting old. The life expectancy in those days was somewhere between 45 and 50 years of age. And Peter was already 40. And he had children, he had a family. What happened to his family? When Jesus told him, come with me, there is, if you are curious to read, there is a Gospel of Peter in the Gnostic scriptures. It's not edited by the church. It's in the Gnostic text which was found in Nag Hammadi in Egypt. There is a Gospel of Peter. And there you read some insane things. For example, that Peter had a daughter that was crippled. She was spastic, something, we don't know. She had polio. She was crippled. And somebody asks Peter, after the death of Christ, many years, he says, how comes that you are making wonders and performing miracles in the name of Christ and you are not taking care of your daughter? And Jesus, Peter addresses his daughter, who is sitting like this in a corner. And he says, for the glory of God and for our Lord Jesus Christ, be normal. And the girl becomes a normal human being. She straightens up and she becomes just like you and I. And Peter says, it's not because. It's because it hasn't been told to me by God to do this. She has her own destiny and the power of God has to be shown through her in another way which you don't understand. And then he tells her, Go back and be as you were before. And she goes in a corner and she re-becomes like this. Like he could fix his own daughter who was a cripple and he doesn't do it. Because Jesus is a terrible master. Jesus doesn't want to, oh, let's make Christianity and heal our members of the family. That's not what Christianity is about. 
It's something formidable. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. What will you do if you are in Shambhala or if you would have the personality of an angel and Jesus is telling you, God is telling you, I am pissed off at the gay community in San Francisco, go and burn them to the ground. Will you look back? If you hesitate a second, you are not good to serve God. God doesn't need servants like that. Because God is making his own judgment. And when that judgment is made, you are supposed to do, not to think. You are not hired for taking decisions. Therefore, how many of you could be soldiers in Shambhala? What will you do if Shambhala tells you that Iran is right and Israel is wrong? Would you start arguing with Shambhala? No, like I can take some of the most politically incorrect things which can exist. And what would you do if Shambhala would tell you that the black people are inferior to the white people? What would you do if Shambhala would tell you that women should not have the right to vote in this world? Would you obey? If you hesitated to a second to what I have said, that's why Shambhala never talks to you. Because you are not ready to go 110%. You want to pass your own judgment. You want to evaluate. The king of the world in Shambhala doesn't need your evaluation. He needs your surrender. He needs you to admit that he is spot on and that you surrender and say whatever you say, my lord, king of the world, I will do 100% instantaneously because I surrender to you. Exactly as you'd surrender to Jesus. You don't say, Jesus, are you sure you are not a bit tired today? Like that one sounded a bit wild. You don't question Jesus. Jesus says, if you look back, you, are, you shouldn't belong to the kingdom of God. How many people today who have that kind of faith? And then there are people who have that kind of faith and they are doing mass shootings like is happening in the world because they are fanatics. There are people who have that kind of faith and they go in a market and they detonate a bomb because they are fucking fanatics. So the problem is, how can you find the fine line between blind fanaticism and the real enlightened belief, surrender? The Tibetan yoga says it very clearly. He says, when there is too much intelligence associated with too little faith, that goes in the error of useless words. Like people who have intelligence but they have no faith, they become philosophers. They want to argue about everything. And when there is too much faith associated with too little intelligence, that goes into the error of fanaticism. Fanatics are people that have a lot of faith, but unfortunately are stupid. They don't have an enlightened intelligence, like what Buddha means. 
Buddha means the enlightened one. Buddhi, Buddha in Sanskrit is the planet Mercury. Buddha means enlightened intelligence. Therefore, Buddha in what he wrote was also very intelligent. You can see that the way Buddha presented the message, Buddha has a splendid intellect. When he says there are four noble truths, and the four noble truths are, this is Ajna Chakra, like boiling down the whole issue of existence to very simple things. Boiling it down to the essence. The universe is made of yin and yang. That's the final thing. Like Lao Tzu, Taoism, that is Ajna Chakra that is boiling things down and seeing the principles of everything. No? And that's why the real spirituality is given to the one that has intelligence, an enlightened intellect, but also enough faith. Because without enough faith, the thinking is too much. The thinking has to know when to say, now I surrender. Now I consecrate and surrender. When Jesus tells you, he doesn't have any problem with the guy going home and saying goodbye. But it's a symbol of the fact that that man keeps one foot in his family. He still cares. He is looking back. Don't look back like Peter, like Paul. Like, you know, like John and Thomas. When you go, you go. There is a river of no return. You don't look back. You give yourself to God, you don't take it back. In, again, in many spiritualities, this is practiced more or less. For example, in Thailand, if you become a monk... You can become a monk for a while. And it's even recommended. Even the king of Thailand has been a monk for 90 days or something like this. And everybody is advised that when you are 20 years old, before you get married or whatever, you should shave your head and go in a monastery for three months to see how the the monks live and to have an idea of that. But that is not a forever. But for example, in Christianity, to give another example, if you become a monk or a nun, you cannot take it back. There are people who did, and they are considered to be cursed. The other people in the community, it was like, why did you become a monk if 20 years later you changed your mind? You don't change your mind with Jesus. Think well, And when you give yourself, you give yourself. There is no way back. If you take your way back, God will be angry at you. You will incur the wrath of God. It's not the right thing to do. So here, you can see something from this spirit of Jesus. And believe me, I have encountered people who are gurus or great people in spirituality, and they have the same spirit. One of my guru brothers, Dharmananda, Swami Dharmananda of India, who visited us in the ashram of my guru in India, 
he was a guy who was doing some very tough tapasya and he was capable to control his mind and body in amazing ways. And I brought him to a yoga class. I had pupils in a yoga class in the ashram of my guru. I was teaching on behalf of my guru. And uh, what people asked, they could ask questions and somebody would translate because he didn't understand perfectly good English. And somebody asked him, I said that story another time, maybe some of you have heard it at that time. Somebody, there were like 40 pupils there, Westerners who had done two weeks of yoga, and they just went there and they asked him, what do you advise us about the practice of yoga? What advice? We are new in yoga, what do you advise us? And this Dharmananda, because he didn't speak English and he didn't want it to go via the translator, he said it directly with his body language. So, recover the question. People say, what do you advise us about the practice of yoga? And Swami Dharmananda said this. Mm. 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 That's the way to do yoga if any one of you wants to get to nirvana. If you want to taste nirvana in this body, in this life, it has to be like this. It doesn't go... Uh, uh. That, that now, because your subconscious mind is not wild enough. It's like you have a thing to spin and you refuse to spin it a hundred percent. You just spin it a little bit and then your little puppet goes taka 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 but then it stops. You have to spin it a hundred percent. You have to go like boom. I'm going to die or I'm going to achieve it. Only that way it works. That's why Jesus is giving frightening examples. He says if you look back, you, can, you are not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Try to think. His own apostles. No, and they were not like this. When, he, when Jesus got arrested, the apostles didn't say, we're going to die, we go for God, we belong to Jesus. They ran away like a bunch of cowards. So it's not that they were better, but Jesus forgave them. He said, okay, I know you are fallible human beings, and so on, I hope next time you'll be better. And next time when they arrested Peter, he was better. He asked to be crucified upside down, you know, like, then he showed them that he had some muscle, no? that he had some heart. But he was like this. So Jesus is very hard. He's telling you something because he says you have to be motivated. You have to kill your ego. You have to tell your ego, die. No, you don't say your ego, die. If you say, yeah, but let me visit my mom a little bit. It's again, there is nothing wrong with the mom. But look that Jesus himself doesn't go to visit his mom from time to time. He's not. Like his mom doesn't care about his mission for the time being. And Jesus says, sorry, I'm busy with some very important people that will change the history of mankind. You know? Like I've got other fish to fry right now. No? I don't have time to come and just play the good family boy who is visiting his mom and so on. I don't. That's why I say, how many have been like Jesus? Not many. Not many. No? So that's why I say, Jesus is a sort of a zenith. He is a star. 
We look at that star and we say we wish we were like that star. We are not, because we are fallible human beings. But at least we try to take some inspiration from the kind of motivation which Jesus generates. So, then we go to finally to the chapter 10, where we are told that Jesus sends out 72. See, numbers, numerology, numerology, numerology. They are always numbers, exactly like in India. There are 64 lovemaking positions. There are 64 tantras. There are 84 classical asanas. There are, I don't know how many, there are 108 Upanishads. There are this, there are that, like always numerologically perfect numbers. 72 is not a coincidence. 72, if you are a bit of a geek in your head, you know that 72 is 6 times 12. Or it's 6 times 6, 36, multiplied by 2. So it's coming from some numbers. 12 is the preferred number, because there were 12 tribes of Israel, and there are 12 astrological signs, and there are 12 spokes of Anahata Chakra. So 12 is the preferred number. But then multiples of 12 also make sense. Here we encounter the number 72. Jesus was almost like the Roman legions. Every In the legions of Rome, there were centurions. You know what centurion means? Centurion means a man who has under his command a hundred soldiers. It's like a sort of a lieutenant, a platoon leader, or a small battalion leader, a small somewhere between the grades of lieutenant, major lieutenant, or maximum captain. That's a centurion. There are 12 apostles, but Jesus had an extended team, which was made of 72 semi-apostles. They were not the full-on. They were the ones which were half. So Jesus is actually sending those, so we can see a very deliberate calculation. They were not 73. If they were, if they counted them, and Jesus says, oh, bugger, I, uh, I somehow gathered 73. He would tell one of you out. You, go out. I need only 72. 72. Not 71. Not 73. How deliberate is that? You realize that here there is a noses, there is a Gnostic thing, there is a knowledge of some things which we are not being told. The Bible never bothers to explain because the, bother, the Bible is for the population. The, bother, the Bible is for millions and millions don't get initiated in numerology. The Bible never bothers to explain what is special about the number 12, or three, or whatever, other multiples, they are there. But they are, for example, in yoga, sometimes they say that the human body has 72,000 nadis. Not 72,375. 72,000. It's numerological. It's all numerological. And thus... 
Here we are already, when you read, you see that between the lines there is knowledge which has not been communicated. And actually the Bible itself says, some of the Gospels, that Jesus explained to these people, the twelve, and probably the seventy-two, many things which were not written in this book. And he told you. He told them probably. Now we talk off the record. Now I'm going to tell you something which you will not write in your memoirs. Like the information was divided clearly in things which can be made public and things which only some people will know. For example, the initiations which are given in Christianity to the different uh, dignities of Christian dignitaries, they have a very, very deep meaning. The great esotericist and metaphysician that was the French, René Guénon, and who was not particularly a Christian adept, like he was not a Christian practitioner, actually in the end of his life, he became Muslim and he moved to Cairo and he lived the final 10-20 years of his life as an Islamic sheikh in sheikh or whatever you put the accent in Cairo, in Egypt. René Guénon, in one of his books, he has a famous book which in French is called Aperçu sur l'esotérisme chrétien, which means considerations upon Christian esotericism. René Guénon demo, like if you want to see, because it's not my time to now quote for you René Guénon and say what he says in a book that you can, can be your homework. René Guénon says very clearly that the initiation which the Pope receives, the ritual which is made to make a cardinal into a Pope, is activating his Sahasrara, and it is opening his causal body. It's something which works on the causal body. But for example, for cardinals and archbishops, it works on Vigyana Mayakosha. And what works for bishops and priests is going on the astral body. That's why bishops and archbishops, they can do prayers and things which normal priests are not allowed to do. For example, a priest cannot anoint another priest. A priest cannot make priests. Only bishops can make priests. So the prayer to make a normal human being into a priest is a siddhi which does not exist in the initiation of a simple priest. A simple priest has not been given the siddhi, the paranormal thing, to do that. And the Pope has something which most archbishops and cardinals don't have. And thus, I'm telling you all those things, because as you can see, this is starting from Jesus. Jesus had 12 people that he sent in the villages the whole winter to do things. It's practicums. They were doing practicums for becoming apostles. Exactly as in our school, some people do practicums to become yoga teachers. No, you have a practicum. And now we are being told of another practicum, a bit more loose probably, because it was not for 12, it was for 72. So it's the next layer. 
It's not for cardinals, it's for bishops or something. And these 72 are like the future bishops of Christianity. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Two by two. Almost never in Christianity, for example, to stay on the same line, it's very seldom that people are allowed or advised to go and practice alone. Why? Because when you are alone, you can go crazy. You can lose your mind. You can go megalomanic or something. When you have a brother, they shake you. They pull you by the sleeve and they say, hey, 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 what's happening with you? It's been a bit much there. No? So two by two, exactly as policemen go two by two to kind of watch each other's back or something. There is something in this. And the Christian monks who lived hermetic lifestyles, they found out that two was not the best because two people can get corrupted together. But if you have three, then it's much more difficult that all three go berserk and the chance is much smaller. For example, two men going together and living in a hermitage, they can start fucking each other in the ass. But if there are three, one of them will be left out and out, at least out of envy will stay and say, hey, what the fuck is happening in our little hermitage here? No? That's why the Christian monks centuries later, when they advised people to go in a simple spiritual practice, they say you should take two or three fellows with you and go in a simple place and their practice. You plus two or three. Groups of three or four are the best for the spiritual practice. One can go crazy. Two can still reach some corruption. Make a sort of a deal. Like thieves make a deal and they are loyal to each other, but they are both of them thieves and rascals. With three, it's very difficult to deviate. And with four, why not five? Because five becomes a pack. It becomes a tribe. It becomes a community. People have to vote, to do things, to do that. And it becomes a monastery. And if it becomes a monastery, there appear other administrative problems which you shouldn't have. That's why the Christian monks, after a thousand years of hermitage, they found out this. They say, you should take two or three and go in the wilderness and do your practice there. In this case, Jesus was not afraid of two deviating because he had 72 of them and he was with them and he focused attention on them specifically and it was just about a few days or weeks because these people were going ahead of him. And I told you, Israel in those days called Palestine as a general area, Israel as the state of today, is a relatively small country. There are places where the breadth of Israel is like from the bottom to the sea, is like 60 kilometers. 60 kilometers, if you walk slowly, you walk them in two days. So if you want to go to Jerusalem or something, how much it takes? 
even if you drag your feet through the dust, can take more than a week. No, so we are talking about a short interval. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is an incredible statement because it shows that in a certain way is like the law of demand and offer or whatever you call it in economics, offer and demand. Like Jesus says, now there will be a new religion. Now there will come a tsunami of religious thing. And I don't have bishops. I don't have gurus. I don't have apostles. So he uses this metaphor. He says the harvest is plentiful. Like there are millions of people to be converted. But the workers are few. It's exactly like you find yourself with a rich harvest and there is nobody to pick it up. And the harvest is rotting on the field because there are no workers. So it's that, that was in the farming world where they lived. You know, now the dates have to be picked up from the trees, from the date palms. So we need workers for one week to pick up all the dates because if you don't pick them at the right moment, the birds will come and eat them. They will start rotting, getting mossy and so on. You can't. We have to pick them dates this week. So he says, in the next 10 years, we have to pick a lot of dates. Who will pick them? And he is praying. He doesn't have aid. But he doesn't say, I am asking for it. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest. Who is the Lord of the harvest? God. Because what are people harvesting? People are harvesting human hearts, souls. He, he called that earlier in another chapter. He said, now you are going to be fishers of souls. You are going to fish souls. There's a harvest. And he says, ask the Lord of the harvest. Like, for whom are you harvesting? For God. It's all the work of God. So he says, ask God, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Like he says, we can't make a revolution unless there will be people to carry out this revolution. And how is that happening? That's happening through grace. Like you go and tell to God, one Buddha is not enough. He's going to come, live, die. But if Buddha has 12 disciples, then the 12 disciples will make 12 disciples, each of them, and in two generations, you are going to have 144 Buddhas who are carrying out the message of the original Buddha. Then you can have a tsunami. Then you can have a revolution. But you cannot get 144 enlightened beings just because you want. Because this is a matter of grace. God could be in an angry mood and say, you are, you are asking me, for workers. You know what? I want you all to suffer for 1,500 years. So there will be no workers. It's a very enthusiastic project that you guys have down there. But it's not going to happen. You don't realize what I want and what the times are about. So, sorry, you will shoot a blank. 
you should, you know, it will not happen because I don't do like this to make 144 human beings reach samadhi and be able to follow in the footsteps. Remember that one person reaching samadhi is a matter of grace. And if God doesn't want it to happen, it doesn't happen, even for one. And thus, you know, Jesus says, ask God, you ask, you know, it's like not only me, Jesus, megalomanic, uh, lone wolf, Jesus. No, you guys, you, 72 of you, go and pray to God and say the harvest is plentiful, we have no workers, send workers, which means make us able. Put your finger on our head and make us enlightened so that we can carry the message of this guy that you sent, called Jesus. Ask for grace. Ask for grace, because without the grace, this story would have died. In a hundred years, this story would have died. Especially how much persecution was happening. No, that's why people say, but uh, what about the prophet Muhammad? There was a grace there. You may like Islam or not, but the fact that a man stayed in a dark room and imagined that the archangel Gabriel dictated to him the Quran, and today there are a billion people reading that book, that's not an accident. It never happens by accident. There are no accidents. There are many people who wrote Bibles, uh, the book of Urantia or something like in the new age especially in the 20th century there have been so many megalomanic mental patients who each one of them imagined that they are starting a new religion some of them even did small movements like this woman who did the Jehovah's Witnesses this guy who created who wrote the book of Mormon and others and others who had the thing that an angel talked to them, God talked to them, and so on. And then we look at how the things have evolved. If Muhammad was mentally ill, and he was just staying in a room imagining that a green angel was talking to him, and that green angel dictating, dictated a fucking thick book, no? then why did it spread and people believe in it? And why are there Islamic saints? Why are there Sufi saints like Rumi and Al-Halaj and Ibn Arabi? And you know, like why did they appear? If all that was the megalomania of a guy in the 7th century who was suffering from psychic disorder and living alone in a room. Then obviously we realize that God has sent workers and God doesn't send workers chaotically or randomly. There are people who followed in the fruits. There was grace. And when there is grace, there is a story which Osho Rajneesh says about two saints from two religions in India, maybe a Muslim and a guru from Hindus, who are brought together by the two communities to fight with each other, to show which is wrong. And those two persons happened to be, both of them, enlightened beings. And they sat there, they put them on a dais, they sat beside each other, they smiled, 
They didn't even look at each other. They went into Samadhi. And after a couple of hours, one of them stood up and left. And the villagers were petrified, like, aren't you going to say something? Aren't you going to put each other down? And this guru said, I was there, he was there, what was there to be said? You know, like when there is grace, there is grace. Every human being, you can say, I don't like Islam, I wouldn't like to be Islamic, but I can see the grace. Therefore, I cannot say that Rumi was an asshole because he was believing in Allah. I cannot dismiss Rumi. No? Because when you read Rumi, you see that there is grace. No? And thus, what I'm saying is here, Jesus is revealing clearly that God has to give the green light. And at that time, Jesus did not know for sure that God will press the button and give the green light, and that there will be a lot of enlightened beings who will start Christianity. He didn't know. He said, pray, you pray. I'm praying also. Don't bother. But you also pray. Because we still don't know if the grace will come. Grace is unpredictable. Even Jesus cannot predict grace. He simply says, Jesus at other times, he shows that there are some things where he himself has to surrender completely. Like in his own crucifixion, in his own death. So he says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Like, will Agama still exist in a hundred years? Only if the Lord of the harvest sends workers. Then there will be some very great yoga teachers in Agama, with Agama, and they will continue this, and then Agama will exist. But if Shiva, for a reason or another, is pissed off at Agama, it will die with this generation. It will go on for another 20 years, and then it will disappear. Can I promise you that it will be there? No, I cannot. If Jesus could not promise so much more, I cannot. Therefore, remember that there is here a very big mystery. Jesus is showing you the existential mode of God. Jesus is sharing you with you how God thinks. And he says, well, it's like God, you know, he has to send workers. He has to allow enlightened beings to manifest on earth. And those enlightened beings will make this go. As we know today, Christianity did exist for 2,000 years and still exists under various forms. And that's why we know that there was some grace. And then he says, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. This is, first of all, an injunction. Like Jesus does not send them out as warriors. He does not send them out to proclaim something authoritatively. He says, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Which by which he announces, because I'm teaching you the path of the heart. You are going to be abused. You are going to be harmed. Some five years ago, 
in the middle of the Syria conflict, when Syria was torn apart in its own internal conflict, and there were all these things with Syria getting falling apart into pieces, and the Islamic State, and everything which was there, an organism from the United Nations, I forgot exactly whom, but you can Google and find out, has made a research about religious persecution in the world. Because, for example, the Islamic State was very, very bad. They were, whoever was not Muslim, and especially not their type of Islam, was killed, turned into slavery, women moved into prostitution, public executions, terrible, terrible. And this United Nations made a United Nations-style survey of where people on this planet, in Africa, in Asia, and wherever, where are people persecuted for religion and which and how. And a very clear conclusion came out of it. The most persecuted denomination on the face of this earth in 2014 or something were Christians. Christians was the most persecuted religious minority on the face of this earth. Why? Because Jesus says it. You have to behave like lambs and the world is made of wolves. And you have to have the power to go like lambs among wolves. So Jesus simply says, I'm sending you in a very humble way, in a very defenseless way, precisely because your weakness is going to win the game. Because people, I, I often, you know, I'm coming from a country where there is quite a bit of anahata in the soul of the country where I was born and where I grew up. And still, whenever I go there and whenever I watch television or read a newspaper about that country, I cannot understand why the Romanians say that they are Christians. Because nobody in that country, including my own family, when it comes to their daily life, they don't love Jesus. And they couldn't be able to do what Jesus told them to do. Nobody obeys to Jesus, and nobody does what Jesus said you should do. Everybody is selfish, proud, vanitous, selfish, I said, greedy, this, that, everybody. And then they, on Sunday, they say, oh, Jesus Christ, help us. And then Monday, they are assholes again. They can go to church and pretend for 25 minutes that they are Christians. And even in the church, they gossip about each other. And they say, have you looked at Walter? Walter was dressed very improper. Like, what's your business? How was Walter dressed when he came to worship God? He can worship God naked. Francis of Assisi appeared on the pulpit and in the sermons several times, two or three times, he appeared naked. A Christian priest, he appeared and preached naked. And so did one of his disciples. No? And he said, you know, you are made naked. God made you naked. So the people that have no clothes, because they are too poor to have clothes, they are not ugly. They are not miserable. They are not, you know, this is the beauty of God. And unfortunately, we cannot watch it without having sexual thoughts or other dirty thoughts. 
and therefore we have to cover ourselves because of our own sinful nature. No? So, it's like, you know, even if Walter comes naked to worship God, what's your problem? It's his relationship with God. No? But, so, that's why I am saying this. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Nobody wants to be a lamb. People are afraid of the wolves. They try to take precautions. Originally, Jesus was extreme in this way. And he says, do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Only the Buddhist monks are told that you can have one robe and one begging bowl. That's all you can have. No? Jesus tells them, don't take a purse or a bag. And he says, not even sandals. Not even sandals. I guess in those days, it was more easy because there was no glass and no shards of metal and stuff like this. And probably it was much less probability that it would cut your feet. I sometimes see some of you who probably presume that you are going to be the next apostles of Christ or of Buddha who are going around in Kopangan barefoot. I don't know how the heck you do it, you know, because I've never been able to go barefoot. And in this island there are cobras and there are thorny plants and there are farangs that break glass and there are shards of metal. You are not in the time of Jesus in Palestine. Get some sandals for God's sake. You know, because you are exposing your feet for nothing. You know, your so-called humbleness and simplicity is not justified by the physical reality of the world in which you live. In the time of Jesus, probably it was okay to go barefoot. And we don't know what it means. If he said, don't take sandals, I'm not a historian of the Bible to tell you if he meant don't take sandals, but take flip-flops. Or something, you know, because there was an alternative to sandals. The sandals were the expensive shoes worn by the Romans, and then the poor Jews were wearing some wooden galettes or some flip-flops made of straw, and that he meant that. Even that I cannot explain because I don't know. But look at what he says. He says, go, I'm sending you like lambs among the wolves because the lambs will conquer the world. That's what I was saying earlier. Even in countries with Anahata Chakra, people don't understand Jesus, and they are in the daily life, they don't follow him. And still they respect him as God. Still, people bow down and put their knees down in church in front of Jesus. Why? Because the intuition tells us that these lambs among the wolves, although it's very impractical, and if I had a child, I would not send my child like a lamb among the wolves because I would be attached and selfish and I would say, take a gun with you to protect yourself, you know. I would not be so detached. But people in their heart know that that is an ideal, that is a great ideal. And if once upon a time there were people who lived like this, I kind of respect them. I bow down to them, although I, miserable as I am, I cannot really live like that. I cannot follow that advice, 
but something in my heart respects it nevertheless it's like I declare that I am inferior to that that is something superior so he says I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves like not harming the others can harm you but you shouldn't harm them and all that the innocent attitude the ahimsa attitude and then the detachment he says don't take a purse or bag or sandals whatever that means go barefoot or go with cheap shoes and do not greet anyone on the road like that guy who said I'm going to greet my mother and tell them goodbye he said now you are on a mission from me so you don't greet anybody on the road you just go like a robot it's like you are programmed to go and do what I told you to do show me that you can perform for God in a certain way you can say that this was a spiritual test maybe some people did not behave accordingly and then they fell out of the group of 72 and others were brought in to replace them we don't know exactly the dynamics of day-to-day -day life in that group because there are a lot of things which are not being told and which are forgotten in this way and he continues with the advice this advice applies to you like let's say that one of you wants to become an apostle of yoga forget about me because I'm not Jesus Christ and I you know as much as I love and admire Jesus I know I'm not worthy to tie his shoelaces so it's not because of me but when you go and teach yoga you teach yoga in the name of Shiva you teach yoga in the name of all the yoga tradition of India and of all that, those lineages and thus if you go as an apostle of yoga in a certain way some of the things which Jesus says here they apply to you like go and do things like this like this like that he, he gives some outlines of course it doesn't apply identically because here Jesus is trying to imprint a line of action strictly on Anahata and he has to step hard on it because the country in which he is is very hot and manipuristic and fiery and therefore he has to really insist on the Anahata things in other countries Thomas went to India in India he found many people with great Anahata so Thomas didn't have to push that hard because he was teaching Christianity in India not in Palestine to Israelis and others people of that area so he says when you enter a house first say peace to this house if a man of peace is there your peace will rest on him if not it will return to you so he gives a sort of a rule of consecration it's like you give a blessing and your blessing is a blessing of peace please be aware that in a couple of other places Jesus says very clearly my peace is not the peace of this world there are people who make fun that in the 1970s and 80s all these pretty girls who came to Miss World to Miss Universe 
especially the finalists, you know, they have to be politically correct. Like you cannot say things which are, if you want to be Miss Universe, you have to be politically correct and therefore they were coached a lot. And uh, they said, what is your greatest dream? What do you wish? And of course, most of them, not understanding a thing of what they said, very Svadistanistic, like dressed in pink, some Svadistanistic blondes with IQs much less than 100, but with perfect tits and asses, they said, peace on earth. I want to make a toast for peace on earth. Which was the politically correct answer to give. Jesus says very clearly, my peace is not the peace of this earth. My peace is the peace of mind. Om Shanti Shanti Shantihi. That means the peace of mind. And the peace of mind, there are Shaolin monks that have peace of mind and they kick, can kick your ass really bad. There have been Japanese Zen masters who had peace of mind and they could cut you with a sword. So peace, the peace of mind does not mean actual peace like this Vadistanistic, conventional, political, socio-economical peace. Jesus did not create peace. Jesus created a huge conflict. He says, for my sake, father will hate his son and the brother will sell his brother. And that's what happened. Some people became Christian and other people hated them. And there was rift in the families and this and that. No, so Jesus didn't bring peace at all. 30,000 people or more, up to 50,000 people were killed in the Colosseum in Rome for being Christian, thrown to the lions, burned alive, crucified, and other monstrous ways of killing people were practicing not on one, not on 100, not on 1,000. It was practiced on tens of thousands of people. So what peace did Jesus brought to earth? when 30,000 people were killed horribly just because they said they were Christians. Jesus did not bring the peace, which means no struggle. His peace means the peace of heart, that you have come home, that you have reached God, that your heart opens, and you are in the kingdom of heaven. For example, there were people who were burned at stake, and others crucified and others, and when they died, they went in ecstasy. Fifteen minutes before dying, they could see them. And they died like this. They didn't feel the pain, because Jesus put them in samadhi, and then they didn't feel it. So that's the peace of Jesus. The peace of Jesus doesn't mean peace of a social nature. So that's when he says that you bless the house and say, peace be to this house. Like, may everybody have peace. Today, we have peace. Europe has not seen a real war, except some a little bit stuff in Serbia and former Yugoslavia, some small things, but generally, Europe has not seen any serious war since the Second World War. And yet there are so many people who suffer, commit suicide, they kill other people, they do all sorts of horrors. 
they become serial killers, they torture children, they do other and other things because there is no peace in their mind, there is no peace in their souls. They sit in their house, they have dough from the government, therefore they have house, they have food, they have clothes, but in their soul there is zero peace. Because Jesus is bringing you this vitamin of the soul. I'm going to give you a pill and you'll have peace in your heart for the rest of your life. You will know I came home. You will know I found God. You will know this is real happiness. You will know this is what I have been looking for for a million years. This is what my soul has been looking for. Peace. Peace. A Romanian poet wrote a magnificent poem about this. Poems are very difficult to translate. They lose a lot of charm when you translate. And when he, he goes in front of this guy, is like a demigod of some sort, and he goes in front of God. And he says, what do you want? And he says, Lord, my heart is hungry only for repose. He uses a word which is used in physics, which means when objects have speed zero. Repose, the state of repose. He says, the only thing which I'm longing for is repose. Because we are agitated by desires, we have samskaras. Constantly we want something. That's what Buddha says. We have no peace because there is desire, 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 desire. And this character in a poem, he says, the only thing which actually I'm longing for, I'm thirsty for repose. Om Shanti Shanti Shantihi. So when Jesus says peace to this house, it doesn't mean peace like there will be no struggle. When Buddha reached peace, there was the local king who tried to kill him three times. There were three attempts on the life of Buddha. Where is the repose? You know, like people have no rest, had no rest, although, G, although Buddha was fully in peace, fully at peace, and he was preaching peace and appeasement of every agitation of the human soul. But there was no physical peace. Physically, they tried to exterminate him. There was struggle. So he says, give this blessing. Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. He speaks like we speak in the Karma Yoga lecture about consecration. You make a consecration and suddenly you feel that it's going. And only people who made a consecration or gave a blessing know that feeling, that sometimes it's flowing through you and you can feel it. And if you have done it a hundred times, you learn to recognize it, you know it. So Jesus simply said, give a blessing of peace. May the peace of God be upon you. And either it stays or it bounces back at you. And then you know you are not in a house of peace. The grace didn't really go through. 
Like we say in the language of yoga, you get a negative answer to your consecration. Or you get no answer to your consecration. And then you say, uh, I don't think I'm going to do this. Because it didn't quite work. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. See, it's karma yoga. But he says, don't take food and... Like those people are bribing you with food and drink. No. He says, if they give you from that peace, if they give you after your blessing, the worker deserves his wages. Like even Jesus receives donations and money and he has to buy food and he has to change his clothes from time to time or something. It's completely absurd to imagine that karma yoga means that you don't get anything. That's not karma yoga. That's just like masochistic self-destruction. You need to eat. You need to drink. You need to have shoes and clothes. So of course it's okay to get something. Here is like we would call in yoga, in modern yoga, that Jesus tells them go and preach on donation. It's on donation. If people want to say, you are a nice guy, I heard about Jesus, I would like you to speak more to me about this Jesus of yours. Come, let's have lunch. Let's, you can sleep in my house tonight. And then Jesus says, accept it. I was apprenticed to an old Christian monk who taught me chiropractice, who was an eminent natural healer. He was a miracle worker, incredible person, was this Christian monk. And he was the man who was carrying a whole monastery of 50 monks on his shoulders. Like all the money and wealth of monastery came from him because he was healing approximately 30 people every day, every day, and those people gave donations to the church. At least some food. At least there were some peasants from the villages. They came up with two bags of flour, of wheat flour, to make bread out of it, and a bottle of oil, sunflower oil. What, you know, whatever they had in their barn, they would give some to the monast to this monk. And the, the abbot of the monastery and the other people, they were treating him like shit. And every six hours, a guy from the administration of the monastery came and collected a sack of food and donations and money and stuff from this priest and took them to the kitchen. So the whole monastery was living on his back. But they were treating him like shit. And when he taught me chiropractice, he said, never charge money for doing healing for people. Never, he said. But if people want to give you something from their heart, accept it with an open heart, because sometimes people feel offended if you don't tell. Like they say, what did I do wrong? This guy did something wonderful to me. I wanted to give him a flower or an orange or a mango. And he said, no, 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 I don't take it. And it's like, he doesn't like me. It's like, I'm too much of a sinner. I'm dirty. I'm, you know, he somehow doesn't accept me. 
So this old monk had exactly this spirit. Because he said, you know, never take, never charge money, never ask for anything. If sometimes you feel that somebody wants to give you something from their heart, then he said, accept it, because though it will make those people happy. It will make their heart feel lighter, because they feel that they have done something good for a spiritual person. So, therefore, this is exactly the spirit which Jesus is describing. He says, stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. You're not supposed to work without wages. The worker deserves his wages. What would you expect, that the Pope should live in a shack? People say, but the Pope lives in the Vatican. Yes, because he is the Pope. He's the king of all Christianity, you know, of all Catholic Christianity. What would you expect? Would you expect him to live into a hut made of mud? He has obligations. He has to meet with a lot of important people. He has to gather councils of cardinals and others. He cannot do that in a hut. It's completely absurd. All of you come from countries. You probably have a king or a president. That king or president lives in a presidential palace. They don't live in a hut. Because that's why they, they go in an armored car. They have expensive, big cars for government. Not because it's necessary a luxury. But because the worker deserves his wages. When you fulfill a certain function, you have to be able to live according to that function. No, people... People would say, yeah, but you know, Swamiji has video cameras to film himself. No, but it's because people are asking to see these satsangs online. You know, there has to be a camera, or for the case when this one gets broken, there has to be a spare one as well, you know, so that people can be served. It's not a luxury if you say that Agama has two video cameras to post things online. That's why I say, think, it's logical, Jesus is not absurd. He says, yes, even eat and sleep there because the worker deserves his wages. You have to think with the mind of God. God doesn't say you should go and kill yourself. Do it, but the worker deserves his wages. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a mistaken understanding of karma yoga. Karma yoga means that you do, but you get nothing. It's not true. We have had people who did yoga. We had a student in medicine. She was teaching yoga in the medical school where she was in Germany, in a park. Because she didn't have money enough to afford to rent a studio, to teach yoga in a studio. So she simply put posters all around, and she said, every Sunday at 6 o'clock, I teach yoga in the park, in the summer, not in the winter. Yeah? As soon as it got a bit warm, she was doing yoga in the park. No, like for free, like the worker deserves their wages. If she was doing it for free, she was doing it for free because she had a place in a park. If she wanted to do it in a studio, she had to charge some money so that the, she could pay the rent of the studio. The worker deserves his wages. Remember, spirituality, even Jesus, who is such an extreme person, he doesn't say you should destroy yourself. It's like you would say, Mother Teresa was taking care of a hundred children, 
but the bitch was also eating and sleeping in that building. Like, what would you have wanted, Mother Teresa, to sleep in a ditch outside, just to demonstrate that she was not poking her finger at all in the thing? It's completely absurd. That's not what karma yoga and service means. And if you have to serve as an apostle of Christ, then you have to serve as an apostle of Christ. And the list could continue. And he says, do not move around from house to house. This instability, Jesus knows it very well. He says, do not move from house to house. Like I went, I was in a village and stayed for three days, and one night I stayed with this guy, and one night... No. He says, you find a house where intuition took you, you gave a blessing, the blessing went through, those people are really having a great heart, stay Stay. If you need to leave the village, leave the village. Go to the next village. But don't practice this. In, in India, Ayurvedic doctors say that this is the typical typology of vata dosha. That people that have too much vata, they are restless. There is even a sign in Ayurveda which shows the signs of death. People who are old, they have a lot of vata. Vata is old age. And vata is a symptom of severe disease and old age for some people. And usually it happens that one or two days before old people die, they start running away from their home. And people find them on the street. If they are a bit Alzheimer, they can't find a way back to their street. But they are chaotic. Why? They get a lot of vata because they are about to leave the body. Vata is almost like a separation from the kapha, from the good old physical body in which you live. And it's a little bit, it's almost an astralization. It's like you start having a semi-astral projection because you are about to be dead in 48 hours. And one of the effects of it is that you get so much vata that you simply can't stand to stay in one place. And Jesus simply says, don't move around chaotically. It's a thing which is a very symptomatic thing in these days, and I'm going to conclude with this. Jesus says another other things as well. He gives very good advice that you can adapt till today, for today. How should you be today? If you are a spiritual person and you want to spread a message, how should you behave? And he says, do not move around from house to house anthropologists without any religion. Just by looking at the fruits of the tree. Anthropologists just judge the society as it is. For example, the biggest development in the intelligence of the human being and making tools and this came after human beings started cooking their food. Fruitarians and raw food people can say whatever they want to say. As long as humanity ate raw food, it stayed stupid and primitive. In the moment when they started cooking the food, any anthropologist, take any course of anthropology and see, in the societies where food started being cooked, they became more intelligent, more creative, they started building houses, water channels, different other things, because of that, we don't know really the biochemistry of the brain, 
and we don't know what was changed. But Chinese medicine says that you absolutely need the prana from the fire. You need your food loaded with the prana from the fire. That's why the Chinese medicine even has slow cookers where they recommend you to boil some dishes for to eight hours. Four hours, you boil it non-stop. And you can say, man, you fucked all the enzymes in it. Yes, but you also put tejas tattva, the fire tattva, into it, and that may have an effect on your brain, energy field, something, which is not accounted in the books of nutrition of today, which are all based on materialism. They cannot tell you what's happening etherically or astrally. They only describe the chemicals in your food. Oh, you got a lot of arginine from that thing. You got a lot of arginine, but what if you didn't get tejastatva? Tejastatva make people come out of Svadhisthana. People who are in Muladhara and Svadhisthana, they need to put some fire in their food so that they get some tejastatva and start becoming samurai, start having codes of laws, start having a spine, stop being jellyfishes and other things. And that's why I'm saying there is a... So, exactly in the same way, anthropologists who look at the human society, they simply know one simple thing. Any one of you studied anthropology, you know that, or social sciences. The human society became much more developed when people became sedentary, when people settled down. Always when you compare nomadic people, like the migratory people of the 4th century, the Goths, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Huns, and all those, when you compare migratory people with settled people like the Roman Empire, living in Rome and staying in Rome, the migratory people were the primitives. All these were primitive hordes with no knowledge of money, law, education, writing, codes, science, morals, ethics, and other things. So it's a well-known thing. We don't have to reinvent the wheel to know from the science of anthropology that evolution of the society happens as people become sedentary. Even the yogis, Geranda in Geranda Samhita, says go to a foreign country, so you don't interact with your family too much, go to a foreign country, build yourself a hut about this big, about that, 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 and stay there and practice yoga until you get enlightened. Like they don't recommend moving around. They recommend sedentary. Stay in one place. Moving around is not only vata dosha, but it's nomadic lifestyle. And it is known in esotericism where that comes from. It's the energy of the moon. Because the moon increases and decreases and it's unstable. It's like the tide and the web that people need to come, go, move, this, that, and so on. Nomadic lifestyle is a Svadhisthanistic lifestyle. That's why the Farangs today, they travel so much. And now they are in Goa, and now they are in Bali, and, now, and they get bored, and they have to move to another place. This is gypsy behavior. In Europe, this is how the gypsies were. With a chariot, 
and they were just moving with two horses and a cart from here. That's nomadic lifestyle. And nomadic lifestyle is inferior. I remember with amusement that I was reading an article written by an Australian journalist about people doing detox, like in Kopangan and other places, you know, flushing the bowels and doing all that. And they were in a place where, and of course they are going through hell because they are not used to this flushing and everything. And then uh, they were gossiping about everybody. There were like 20 people doing detox and colonics and this. And of course the only thing they could do all day long was gossiping with each other. And somebody of them said, see, that is Walter. Walter is always on the move. He never stays more than 10 days in one place. And he said, uh, I admire him so much for his nomadism. The man who said this is an idiot for whom the values are upside down. For him, a nomadic person is superior to a settled person. Anthropologically, a settled person belongs to a social order which is superior to the nomadic. The nomads are primitives. And even the yogis, with a few exceptions when they went on pilgrimages and this, they were not nomads. Even Ramakrishna, who was an Aquarius, he tried to go on a pilgrimage one time, and then he found a hundred hungry people on the way, and he asked the guy to put all the money and to feed them. And then they had no money for the pilgrimage, and he turned back home. Like he did a pilgrimage of about 30 kilometers. Then he turned back home. Ramakrishna never went on major pilgrimage, although he was an Aquarian. He was Vata, and he was a Vata type of Aquarian. No? And he didn't. Therefore, Jesus is perfectly right. He hits this one on the nail when he says, also, do not move around from house to house. This, that, that doesn't show something good. This instability of your body is the instability of your mind and emotions. The nomadic lifestyle is like the moon. You are on Svadhisthana and exactly as the moon comes and goes, you feel like coming and going. And inside you are like this. You have to be like this. You have to be stable. So, this advice of Jesus applies beautifully to the life of yoga by drawing analogies. We don't live in Palestine in the year 30 of the Christian era. No? We live in the year 2000 and something, and therefore adapted, adapted to what it is. Some of this stuff is still perfectly valid. It is enough. Jesus says more, but I will not have time to go into it because they are big subjects. I will start from this advice of Jesus with the nomadic and stable things and the blessing and all the things which he said. And I will continue next week by telling you more about what Jesus advises. And then we will see if any one of you is an apostle of yoga. Maybe some of you are made to go around and to teach yoga, to live out on a limb, you know, to live on a wing and on a prayer, as the airplane pilot said in the Second World War, you know, like maybe that is your style. Uh, enough of that. Thank you all for joining tonight and resisting to all this. And I will see you in Agama in the 
coming activities.